Tonight's Bible reading comes from Matthew chapter 13, verses 18 to 23. So listen to the meaning of that story about the farmer. What is the seed that fell by the road? That seed is like the person who hears the teaching about the kingdom but does not understand it. The evil one comes and takes away the things that were planted in that person's heart. And what is the seed that fell on the rocky ground? That seed is like the person who hears the teaching and quickly accepts it with joy, but he does not let the teaching go deep into his life. He keeps it only a short time. When, troubled or per- when trouble or persecution comes because of the teaching he accepted, then he quickly gives up. And what is the seed that fell among the thorny weeds? That seed is like the person who hears the teaching but lets worries about this life and love of money stop that teaching from growing. So the teaching does not produce fruit in that person's life. But what is the seed that fell on the good ground? That seed is like the person who hears the teaching and understands it. That person grows and produces fruit, sometimes a hundred times more, sometimes sixty times more, and sometimes thirty times more. Amen. Thank you so much for reading that word for us. Well, good evening one and all. It is good to be here again this evening. Um, We are in the last evening of our series on how to read the Word, how to read the Bible. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed the series. I hope you've had things that you can actually apply to your life and you've taken things from this series that you are going to continue to use. That is our desire. This evening, uh, the message is going to be rather short. It's going to be around 15 minutes, I hope. And then after that, we have a number of questions that people put in the box um, that we're going to answer for you this evening. Um, Pastor Darrell and Pastor Brendan will help me with that. In fact, they can do all of that. I'll just sit back and relax. Uh, But then if you've got other questions, uh, feel free. We will be providing an opportunity for you to ask those questions, but we ask that you keep them specifically on this topic. We're happy to answer other questions, just not tonight during this service, Um, but um, yeah, if you've got any questions that come to mind, uh, please uh, feel free to ask them. So, as we conclude this series, I want you you to think about um, the value of God's Word. Uh, I want you to think about the fact that God has provided his word specifically for you. He wants you to read it. He wants you to understand it. And it's his primary way of communicating with us. And if we're going to gain the most benefit from it, most benefit from it, we have to be willing to spend time in it and to open the word. And it's not just about reading the word, it's about dwelling in it, it's about living in that word, it's about digging deeper and trying to find what God is trying to say. Unfortunately, some people use God's word, they have this habit of using it to point out fault in others. That's an abuse of God's word. That's not what he intends for us to do. And God's word, when we open it, it should become like a mirror to us. It should be something that reveals things in our life that we need to change, things that challenge us to draw closer to God. That's what God's word's all about. And the thing is, we're only going to get that if we approach this word with a certain attitude. We're only going to get that if when we walk in these doors to come to a service in the mornings or in the evenings or whatever, we come with an attitude to engage with God. We want to hear from him. Any other agenda, you're not going to gain that. And I think we have to be coming with a desire continuously to hear from God. And when we do that, things will begin to happen. You look in a mirror, I know, And if your hair's untidy or something like that, you tidy it up before you go out. Hey, that's exactly what God's word should do for you. When you see things revealed by his word that need to change, you should take every step you can in order to make that change happen. Take the steps that is required to correct that. And God's word reveals to us how we should live, how we should respond to Christ. And when we truly study his word, desiring him, hungry and thirsty for him, with a prayerful willingness to submit, we will see the things that need to change. And with God's help, we will be able to change those things. 
James 1.23 says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And if there's been nothing else that you've got from this series, I hope that you take this at the very least. Don't just read God's word. Dwell in it. Ask for wisdom to hear God's voice as you approach his word and read it. Ask him to reveal his truths to you. And then when he does that, ask him for the strength to take the action that those challenges put to you. We must embrace them to be more like Christ and less like the rest of the world. Let's just pray. Father, I thank you so much for your presence with us this evening. I thank you, Lord, that you've been through us even when we don't gather here. But Lord, we pray specifically tonight that you'll open our hearts, our minds to hear from you. I pray that we'll engage with your word, Lord, that we'll have a desire to know more of you and that we'll be transformed to be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. The passage that we read out earlier this evening is a well-known passage for the majority of us gathered here tonight. And Jesus speaks to the crowd in a parable. And when we go back to when he first spoke about um, this in verses 3 to 9, he he talks about this sower. And I want you to think about um, what happens in this story. Do we have any farmers? I think I've asked this before. Do we have any farmers in the congregation? No. You speak to any farmers and this story is absurd. No farmer throws seed that is going to land on rocky ground. No farmer throws seed that is going to land amongst thorns. They have to make the most of the seed that they have to bring a profit, to bring a return on what they actually sow. And so as Jesus is speaking, these people are like, what, what is this guy on? What's, what's, what's going on in this story? And then he tells this story about each of the um, seeds where they fall, each of the grounds that it falls in. It's great to have a caring wife. Thank you. And so at the end of it, Jesus says nothing. He just leaves them where they're at and says this phrase, he who has ears, let him hear. And when we think about what happened with the crowd after he he, he spoke that parable and as he said this phrase, they just wander off. They don't engage with Jesus at all. They don't ask any questions or anything like that. So what does it mean for these people? They've gone off, they're scratching their heads, they're wondering why Jesus even bothered to mention what he did. And they've been unwilling to approach Jesus and to ask him what his message was about to get Jesus' perspective and understanding of what he actually said. And they're not willing to hear what Jesus is actually saying. And in reality, they're much like the Pharisees and the leaders at that time. And the sower who goes out to sow in this case is Jesus. He's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And because this is is Jesus, we know that the seed is good, yeah? You can't get any better seed than the seed that Jesus sows. But the seed in this case is the message of the kingdom of God. And we know from this story that it does not always produce a harvest. So the message itself is good. The seed is good. And it's not so much about the seed. It's about the soil, whether the soil itself is good or bad. And so Jesus is casting this seed. And I just want to say, we are now the casters of seed for Jesus. This is an aside to what we're going to talk about tonight. And this is an illustration of where we should cast our seed. If you're standing in the middle of an airport car tarmac guess what Jesus says cast the seed it's not up to you I have warehouses full of seed wherever you go whatever you do cast the seed don't judge where you are don't judge the people you're speaking to that's my role that's my task you just cast the seed and it's Jesus who brings the return he'll make that happen wherever that seed falls 
But back to this story, we've got a number of illustrations here of different soils and things like that. And the first one that we come across is the hard hearts. And when we read verse 19, we see that these people are the ones who actually have hard hearts. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And these are the people, like the people in the crowd when Jesus first spoke this parable to them. They're ones who don't understand what has actually been said and they've got no desire to find out. They don't want to dig deeper. And after Jesus spoke these parables, his disciples, and I believe it would have been more than the 12 at the time, it would have been a number of followers of Jesus at that time, they come to him and they ask him to explain. They wanted to know, they had this hunger and passion to know what Jesus meant by what he was saying. They were hungry for the word. And these people, the crowd, they didn't understand. It was their hardness of heart, their lack of willingness to understand the truth, to engage with Jesus and what he has spoken. It was that that prevented the seed from finding a place in their heart. It didn't really have an impact. And then worse, Satan came along and made sure that that seed was snatched away so there was no chance of it taking root and changing that person. He distracted them. The second group of people are those who've got shallow hearts. These are people who initially respond to the word and there's the potential for the seed to take root and grow. And 20 to 21 says, As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. What we continually get told through scripture about a life with Christ is that persecution and trouble is going to come. It's a given. If you live for Jesus, you're not going to live a life where there's not going to be problems, where there's not going to be struggles. And I think Jesus is quite forthright in telling us that. He's not concealing that. He doesn't hide it. And what we see with these people is a willingness to accept the good news of Jesus Christ. They embrace that. They're excited about that. But they seem to want Jesus, but not the troubles that come with it. And I think in a lot of ways, I was like that. And I think some of us are still like that, where we don't actually want to talk to our friends about Jesus because we know that there's going to cause issues in our relationship. It's going to cause pushback and problems. We don't want people to generally know that we're Christians because, you know, people think Christians are weird. And if that's you, I think we've got to change our attitude. Because this is the type of person that has been spoken about here. It's these people with shallow hearts. And so they're concerned that if they are obedient, if they do what Jesus calls them to do, if they speak about him and their newfound relationship, then that trouble's going to come. Their friends won't want to be with them anymore. There's things that they're going to have to give up, things that they like in the world. It's going to cause issues again between them and their friends. But even so, They initially accepted that word with joy. There was something about Jesus that they loved. But that joy evaporates and fades when they think about the true cost of following Jesus. And then we have, that's the first time that's done that in a while, the thorny hearts. (coughs) These are the people... Again, who receive the gospel message joyfully. And again, there's great potential for the seed to grow. There's soil there. And Matthew 13, 22 tells us, As for that which was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And these are the people who receive the word, and then the things of the world loom large. These are the people who continually get their priorities wrong. This is... One of those reasons I say that if God is not, you know, I always say that God is not our number one priority. And I know people hate me saying that. God, when we give our lives to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when we value Jesus the way that we should, he's not our number one priority. He becomes the purpose of our life. If he is the purpose of our life, no priorities are going to come in and push him out. And we have a tendency to prioritize things. And unfortunately, we so often prioritize the things of the world above Jesus. 
Unfortunately, we really push to study at a certain period in our lives because we want that extra career that we should have. We want to be in a certain pay bracket. We need to get a house. We need to get a wife. We need to get all sorts of things. We think about the status that we should have in the world and we strive towards that. And it's those things that crowd out the word of God. And before we know it, it's been totally choked out. And the way that this is gauged, the way it is measured, is by the fruit you produce. And I don't want to raise of hands, but how many of us have had the joy, the delight, the pleasure of leading someone to Christ? Now, don't hear me saying that Thurindu leads people to Christ. I've rebuked him before. Holy Spirit does that. But when you're there, when that person gives their life to Christ, there is nothing better. It is absolutely sensational. And when you speak to someone about Jesus, even when they don't give their life to Christ, when you see that spark go on their eyes, um, that's what I live for, seriously. I saw it again last night. I'm not going to say too much, but oh man, I, I just live for that. If I get that just a couple of times a week with every other thing that could go wrong during a week, if I get that once or twice a week, it's fantastic. It's brilliant. And I want to encourage you, if you don't know how to share the gospel, Thurinda will teach you. Tom will teach you. These are guys who just talk about Jesus everywhere they go. I'll tell you. And it's hard at first. But man, when you get over that, that's truly living. I've got to tell you. I know you think it sounds corny, but nah. We're dealing with people and their eternity. We're talking to people about this saviour, this incredible one who loves them, who wants to spend eternity with them. It's not just a feel-good moment. It's something that's going to take them into an eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. I can't think of anything better to tell our friends about. It is absolutely sensational. Did I get lost? Possibly. And the problem is we give these other things priority. And I know we have a tendency to say, this is just for a season. This is just for a little while. Lord, once I earn X amount of dollars, then I'll do this for you. Lord, once I achieve this, then I'll do this for you. It's not the way it works. Jesus says, come now. And you say, but I've got nothing. He goes, I don't want anything. I just want you. And when you go with the little you have, he multiplies that. He does great things. Because, you know, it's never been about you. It's always been about him. And he uses the foolish things of this earth to bless and bless abundantly. That's our Lord and Saviour. So what? I mean, seriously, what's that mean for us? Whoop, I'm skipping ahead now. Okay, we'll get back to this one. Receptive hearts, we want to hear about those, hey? This, this is awesome. This is so good. This is the soil. And the only soil that's actually called good in, in this whole list. So Matthew 13, 23 says, As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. This is the person who not only hears the gospel message, but they embrace it and they say, yes, this is for me. I'm going to be obedient to all Jesus calls me to be. I'm going to dig into his word. I'm going to study it fervently. If there's stuff I don't understand, I'm going to find out. I'm going to hound the pastors every day if I have to. I'm going to hound my leaders every moment of every day if I have to, because I want to know Jesus. And they don't only get to know Jesus in a head knowledge, it's a heart knowledge, it's a relationship they have with him. And they're so overwhelmed by what Jesus is doing that there's this overflow that develops. And what happens with overflow? It goes out to others. And these people are the ones who are passionate about sharing the gospel message with their friends. And I've got to tell you, I've met some people who are nuts in a very good way. I think I've told you about my friend on the Sunshine Coast. You'll be driving along with him and suddenly, you know, you bash your head against his shoulder because he's ripping into a car park. And he says, I'll be back in a second. And the door flies open. He goes racing off and you're sort of like, what's going on? And then he just bails this guy up on Esplanade or something. He has this real animated conversation with him. And he comes back and he jumps in the van. He goes, no, it wasn't him. I was like... What, did you think he named? He said, no, no, I thought Jesus told me that I should talk to him and that I should lead him to, to know Jesus, but it didn't work, man. So, you know, that's okay. It wasn't him. So, you know, you get up the road a bit further, he does it again. And this is a guy who, he's not theologically sound. He's not a great theologian. He doesn't memorize scripture. He doesn't have the mental ability or capacity, but he loves Jesus. 
And as far as he can, he is obedient to Jesus. And he literally reads something that says, fits in here, I've got to do it. And he does it. He's an amazing guy. He's led so many people to Christ. Blows my mind. Puts me to shame. It's those with receptive hearts. It's those with good soil who produce fruit. And it's only them, only them who produce fruit. Each and every one of these people live in obedience to Christ and as such cannot help but bring others into the kingdom. Can't help it. So when I got ahead of myself and I said, so what? This is the so what bit. <clears throat> Thinking about it in context to um, the topic and the subject that we've been covering this evening and in the recent weeks, I have to ask you, are you willing to open God's word and allow it to be that mirror to reveal the things in your life that you need to address? Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to come into this place and put Christ first and foremost and say, Lord, coming here is all about meeting with you. I want to engage with you. I want to know you more. Are you willing to come along to prayer meetings? Are you willing to come along to Bible studies, connect groups, gatherings where we praise and honour and glorify Jesus' name because you want to engage with him? And are you willing to do the hard yards? so that you're living a life for him. Do not hear me wrong. Salvation by faith through grace alone. Don't come and work and think you're going to earn your salvation. That's not the way it goes. We are saved through Jesus Christ alone, the finished work on the cross. But there's an expectation from that that we will be obedient to him. And that's where this comes in. We read his word and do what it says. When you come to study God's word personally, do you read it and are you going to read it with an expectation that God can and will speak to you each and every day? And if he doesn't speak to you in what you've got, are you going to persevere? Are you going to dig deep? Are you going to ask God to reveal something to you? Or are you going to harden your hearts? Are you going to say, this isn't worth it? I'm not getting anything out of this. Are you going to read God's word? And then worry about what living it out is going to cost? Or are you going to read God's word and say, Lord, me and you, Lord, whatever it takes, we're going to do it. You and me today, today, Lord, we're going to do it. Are you going to be more concerned about your present friendships and relationships than you're going to be concerned about your eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you going to be more concerned about your friends and maintaining those friendships than telling them about Jesus so they can be in eternity with you with Christ? Are you going to make growing your relationship and knowing his direction and guidance each and every day a priority? Or are you going to allow yourself to be guided by the wisdom of the world? It's a good question for each of us to ask. When you need direction and guidance and wisdom, who do you go to? Do you go first and foremost to Jesus? Do you pray to him initially? And then if for some reason that's dry, because trust me, he does speak to us, do you gather trusted Christian friends around you to pray for the same subject? Do you come to the pastors or your leaders and ask them to pray for you so, so that you can gain wisdom? Because that's what we should be doing. We should be so desiring to hear from God that we commit and make it a priority. Are you going to put aside those things that cause you not to focus on our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you desire to be like the good soil? Is that where you want to be? The person who gives God his rightful place in their lives, he prioritises his time with him, he digs deeper into his word in order to get to know him more and more and more and to know his will and purpose in all that you do. Is that where you want to be? Because, you know, we're living in the now and the not yet. It'd be great if when we became Christians that the sin that we had just gets taken away and we're taken a glory straight away and everything's rosé. Or if we stayed on this earth, then sin just was no problem. We were never tempted again. But that's not the way it works. 
where our eternal life starts the moment we give our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're living in eternity. But the problem is we're living in this body, this body that is just distracted and wrought by sin. And I still sin as much as I don't want to. But the question is, are we going to keep going back to him? Are we going to keep repenting? Are we going to keep asking him? Are we going to claim the promises in Scripture where sin no longer has dominion over us? Sin no longer has a hold. Who has a hold on us? Only Jesus. Only Jesus. And if Satan says anything else, if he says you're rubbish, if he says you're no good, if he says you're not following him, if he says you're useless, if he says any of that, you say, no way, man. I'm a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Sin has no dominion. It has no hold on me. Romans 8.1. That's where we need to live. We need to claim the promises of Scripture. And the only way you can do that is if you know Scripture. I'm going to close in prayer. Then I'm going to ask Pastor Darrell and Pastor Brendan to come forward. And uh, we'll see how we go answering some questions for you. Let's just pray. Father God, I thank you for this series. I thank you for what you've taught me as I've gone through this, Lord. I thank you for the call again to think about how we dwell in your word. And Lord, I pray each and every person here will have this desire, this hunger, this passion to dwell in your word, to, to be living in your presence and glory, Lord, to know you intimately. And Lord, to allow you by power of Holy Spirit to change us. Lord, that's our prayer for tonight. Draw us closer to you. And Lord, I know by power of Holy Spirit, you've been ministering and speaking to people here this evening. I ask, Lord, that they won't put that aside. They won't ignore it. They'll respond to it. If they've got to come forward and pray, Lord, if they've got to ask for guidance and wisdom, I pray they'll do that, Lord. Whatever it takes, give them the intestinal fortitude to do it tonight, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not sure if I'm going to get away with actually just handing this off to um, these guys, but um, that would be the preferred option. Um, so we'll give um, Pastor Darrell the easiest one of the night because, you know, I wanted to ease him into things. So you can have that one, sir, and I'll get your microphone. Evening, everyone. <clears throat> the question is, um, uh, more on the cannon, please. It's a request. Um, the canon is the word that is used to um, define which book should be in the Bible and which book shouldn't. And those books that are in are called the canon, the canon. How did this come about? Well, if you've seen the Da Vinci Code, then you'll hear uh, Dan Brown say that it was decided by a Roman emperor, um, Constantine, and that he was the one who made the decision with the church, and that's not true. The way it came about came about in two stages, firstly the Old Testament and then the New Testament, obviously. The Old Testament was uh, books, the 39 books of the Old Testament are put together by, accepted by the Jewish rabbis, their authorities, which is endorsed by Jesus and the early church. That's not a problem. The New Testament books, 27 of them, was a process of time. <clears throat> Took decades, uh, generations. Probably by the end of the first century, it's, it's heading in that direction. Uh, certainly by the second century, there's um, solid development of it, but there are some fringes around where instead of 27, there was 26 for some and 22 for some. And um, <clears throat> There was a guy, a heretic called Muratorian, sorry, in 170 AD, he came up with his own list. Well, that then motivated the church to say, well, what is the list? And they asked a series of questions. God is the one who inspired the scriptures, so it's a work of the Holy Spirit. How do we recognize that? Number one, who is the author? If it's an apostle or somebody who was hanging around with the apostles, like Luke or Mark, uh, then they're an eyewitness to the Jesus events, of Jesus actually coming and hearing. And so apostolic authorship, or close to it. Number two was acceptance. Which books are widely accepted by God's people in all the different churches, in all the different continents and cultures and so on? What are you reading in church? Um, and not all of the churches were reading exactly the same books, but gee, there was a strong overlap of the 27. So 22 of them at least were very common. They were early acceptance. 
Then the third question was to do with teaching, the uh, consistent teaching of what we know from the Old Testament, what we know from the teaching of Jesus. Is this book teaching in line with that? For instance, is Jesus Lord? Is Jesus God? Does it proclaim that or does it proclaim something else? And thirdly was to do with the content of the teaching. Is God using that book to transform lives? Is it has high spiritual value? So those four questions led to great confidence. By the end of the 200s and the beginning of the 300s, uh, the churches were getting together and saying, okay, these are the books. By the end of the 300s, it's locked in. And it's been that way ever since. 27 books. Um, okay. Is that enough? You want more? There is a lot more, but that'll do. Um, so it's a process, basically, of the church didn't pick the books. The church was recognising the books that God picked. Does that make sense? Take that one. All right, I've got, the Old Testament seems, often seems hard and irrelevant. How should we understand it as Christians? Well, Amen. Good question. <laughs> well, the, the, uh, the way it often seems they're hard and irrelevant, that's half right. It's hard. Um, it's certainly harder than reading the New Testament in a sense because, well, it's just a more complex portion of the scriptures. Um, the events of the Old Testament, starting from Adam moving up to where you sort of like run out of narrative in, in Ezra and Nehemiah, is about three and a half thousand years. So a lot of stuff happens in three and a half thousand years. The, the way that people talk to each other changes, their expectation changes. God has done a lot of stuff in history over that three and a half thousand years. The, the time span of the New Testament is like 30 years. Just like... That's like, and that's sort of a, a testament to how amazing Jesus is. It's like he completely changes the world in this tiny little time period that's been building up to in the Old Testament. But the point is the Old Testament is building up to Jesus. Um, and often we get this kind of well-meaning but not true dodge promoted among Christians that like the Old Testament and the law and all that is there just to show us how hard and complex and bad things were. But now Jesus is here, so forget two-thirds of the book. Like, it's not like that. That two-thirds of the book is building up to something. Um, the way God is looking to, to shepherd his people towards goodness um, and to bring a savior into the world. He's consistently imploring them to change their behavior all through the Old Testament. And you see the way that people turn to him and then they fall. And they turn to him and they fall. And that's an eternally relevant message because we turn to him and then we fall. Um, and we see, despite the fact that these are people living four or 5,000 years ago or something in some cases there, they're very much like us. The human problem has always been the same, that we habitually turn away from God towards our own desires and our sins, and we need him to intervene in history to bring us back to him. And the Old Testament is a long and pretty cool, if you, if you dig that stuff, if you like really just bite into it, a series of God intervening in history to turn his people back to him, to secure his plan in spite of their constant need to rebel against him. And that culminates finally in the New Testament. And there's all sorts of prophecies and stuff, all sorts of images and things that you see in the Old Testament that once you know the new, once you know Jesus, you can look back and go, oh, this is, this is actually pointing forward and pointing forward. So if you're a new Christian, definitely start with, the new, like start with the gospel, start with learning who Jesus is, and that will equip you to look backwards into the Old Testament and understand it. Um, but it shouldn't be seen as like a separate thing that's kind of the old way of doing things. We don't think about that now. It's... It's like the ramp up to the jump, you know, like it's, it's such an important build-up um, to bringing Jesus into the world, to God establishing his, his will and bringing his saviour and, and preparing mankind to receive him. So it's the, the build-up to the, the, the climax of the story of God intervening in creation, and that is Jesus. So there you go. Um, excellent answer. Just to add to that, the New Testament in Jesus refers to the Old Testament as the word of God. And so it's the word of God, the Old Testament, which is the inspired word of God. It's clearly attested. And so to not read the Old Testament is to reject God's revelation to us. It's as simple as that. And so you won't fully understand the New Testament. There are things you will not get unless you know the story, the background story. It's like coming in to watch a series of movies, you know, when you watch the last one. Like if you watch, what is it? Marvel's Endgame. Doesn't make any sense at all if you don't know what's going on. Who are these people? Who are these characters? Where do they come from? Where do they get those abilities? You need the Old Testament to, not to explain Endgame, but to explain. Okay, that was interesting. <laughs> don't take that as theology, please. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so uh, one of the questions we had uh, put forward was, why is the Bible not in chronological order? And uh, the short answer is it is, um, some of them. And uh, what we need to appreciate is um, that there's 66 books in the Bible and there's a number of Bibles that are produced with those 66 books. And uh, there's no sacred order. Uh, but there is a standardised Bible, which is the Bible that most of us have. And uh, there's a very good reason for them to be uh, in the order that they're in. So uh, there's 66 books, there's 40 authors written over about 1,500 years, those types of things. And when we look at books like Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, that, that gives us an idea of why they're in the order that they're in. So um, when we look at Samuel, it tells a covenant history, how the kings who led Israel uh, kept violating the covenant God made with his people. And uh, this helped the Jews in exile in Babylon and understand why they were in exile. Then the second tells a royal history. So these are how certain, kins took, certain kings took care of the temple and the worship of God and everything like that. And this was before the people were actually sent into exile. And this account barely ever mentions the evil kings, the kings that did bad and those types of things. But it still faithfully and completely tells the story um, of Israel for the purpose of that particular book. It encouraged the exiles that they should uh, return to their land and then the king would actually rule over them again. And so taking all of those accounts such as Kings, kings and Chronicles and merging them into a chronological order would destroy that specific reason for that book actually being written. So, so that's one of the reasons why they are actually kept separately. About why the, Bible, the chron chronology of the Bible? Oh, I'll try and do this. I'm not sure if it'll come across. It's more something you should draw or something, but... <laughs> The Bible is roughly in chronological order, roughly. Um, and there are two significant events in the Old Testament. There is the Exodus, and then there is a thing called the Exile. And everything either is building up to the formation of Israel as God's people, or it's that, as Brendan said, about the rising and the falling and the disobedience and then God removing them from the land, and that's the Exile. And the books of the Old Testament particularly revolve around those two key events. Here we go. Follow this if you can. There are... This is just the Old Testament. I'll do the New Testament another time. Um, the, the Old Testament falls into these two halves. This, there's a central five books, the books of poetry or books of wisdom, starting from Job and going to Ecclesiastes. That's at the heart of the Bible. And those books are pretty much about the heart, about how you live your life, being wise in the choices you make. Before that, there are 17 books, and after that, there are 17 books. Watch this. The 17 divide into 5 and 12. And the second 17 divide into 5 and 12. With me? <laughs> the first five books are called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These first five of these ones are foundational. They're the five major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentate, Jeremiah, Lament, Ezekiel. <clears throat> these 12 divide into 9 and 3. These are all historical books. The nine historical books in order are before the exile. The three of this 12 are after the exile, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Still with me? These five and 12 are the five major prophets, the 12 minor prophets. The 12 minor prophets fall into, guess what? Nine and the nine minor prophets are before the exile and the last three are after the exile. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Isn't that cool? Who could put that together? God. Now, having said that, that's our English Bible. All right? There are other Bibles. The Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, is not structured that way. It's got a different structure. And other denominations, other cultures have different structures to their Bible too. But ours is right because we're English and that's the structure. <laughs> Joking. So there is a chronology to the Bible. It starts from creation and moves forward. But it's not, having said that, you can buy a chronological Bible, which is rewritten and put things in the right order. So the book of Job, for instance, fits back in the time of Abraham. So when you're reading through Genesis, you'll suddenly hit Job. Or if you're reading, you know, the Kings, you'll be reading about David's Psalms or Solomon and Ecclesiastes. It'll put all of that in order for you, <coughs> which is annoying. Just stick to the Bible you've got. That's right. Right. Because the Bible is, as we have learned in week two, a variety of genres. It's not a singular book. It's a book of books. Um, and so those books, it's not like a single story told from beginning to end. It's more complex than that. Which brings us to the question that I have. Uh, in week two, 
it was said that different books of the Bible use different genres and we need to be looked, and need to be looked at differently, e.g. the Gospels, look for when, who, where, etc. How should the other genres be approached? That's fair. What's a genre? You should have been here on that night in week two when I talked extensively about that. French policeman. <laughs> French policeman. It's a gendarme. Oh. All right. Um, no. Well, that's a excellent question, and I didn't give an awful lot of information about every one of those individual genres on the night because that would have been a whole sermon. Um, but we have some stuff here now. I've put together a little uh, little booklet of things to look for in the other genres. If you would like to have a look at that after, if that's relevant to you, Charlie's found this uh, this superb little printout that that lists uh, the books of the Bible under the genres which are most relevant to them, um, and so. These are available to you after the service to come up and grab one of these if you feel that will be helpful and edifying. Um, yeah, it'll take, it'll take too long to go into these like seven or eight different genres that are sort of primary and be like, what do you look for in each? But it's definitely a thing worth considering. Grab one of these. Um, yeah, I guess next question. Does that answer the question or do you want more? <laughs> no more. The crowds were silent. <laughs> One of the other questions that we were asked was for the um, top 10 methods of memorising scripture. Um, I think this is one of those relative questions which something works for one person won't necessarily work for another. So uh, can I encourage whoever asked that question to go to Bible Gateway? Uh, Bible Gateway does actually have the top 10 uh, Bible memorisation methods there and uh, they are reasonably good. Um, But if that doesn't work for you, please get back to us and we'll help you with some other methods that you can use uh, to memorise scripture. Pastor Darrell's particularly good at this. Um, he's a good student. I'm actually not a good student, so don't ask me. Uh, he'll be able to help you out with some memorization. But Bible Gateway, as I say, it's got 10. It's good. There are three <coughs> rules to Bible memorization. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Write it out, hear it, draw it. Repetition, repetition, repetition. There is no other way. How many letters in the English alphabet? 26. Can you say them? Of course you can. How do you know that? You memorised it. How did you memorise it? I learned a song. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that number six or something? Um, um, use music to help. Write a song. Amen. Use music to help. Yeah. Alright, this one maybe we can all have a little comment on. Um, How do you choose what book, chapter, section of the Bible to read next? Um, I guess that's sort of an individual question, but the way I do is I usually think of what I haven't read in a while. Um, So if I come to the end of a a book and I go, I've just finished Ezekiel, that was very trippy. Um, I'm probably kind of done on major prophets for a while unless God has spoken to me and said, no, 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 you are going to keep going in prophets. Um, and I'll think, what haven't I read in a while? And I might jump over to a gospel or something. So there's, I don't think there's really a specifically a hard rule. Uh, if I'm trying to do a read through the Bible in the year plan, you can set that at the start of the year. There's lots of those available online that are very helpful and they'll list out, you know, two Old Testament chapters, two New Testament and a psalm. And that way it breaks it up nicely for you to progress through and you don't get like completely blown away by reading 150 psalms in a row. Um, so that's how I do things. What about the Proverbs? 150 of those in a row? <laughs> yeah, you want to break them up. Yeah, I think um, the, the way I actually read the Bible at the moment, I, I do uh, a New Testament reading, an Old Testament reading, and a psalm. And uh, I just actually keep going through. So once I'm finished, I go back to the start and keep going. Um, obviously, I finish the New Testament quicker than I finish the Old Testament, but I just keep it on a cycle anyway. Yeah. Similar, I tend to alternate between one and the other, but also uh, try to sense, you know, what the Lord is prompting me to read, uh, but keeping a track on, I haven't read these books, yeah. you know, but when you've been a Christian as long as I, when you're as old as I am, <laughs> you've read the Bible through several times, so in the beginning I found the Bible reading plans helpful in terms of discipline, but now I find them frustrating, because I don't want to read, I don't want them to tell me what I want to read. <laughs> I want to read something and respond to it. And if I want to come back and reread the same chapter the next day, then that's what I do. And so I'm pretty selfish in how I read the Bible. Okay, so I've got a question here. How do, how do we understand the Bible? And uh, I think there's times that we all have to admit there's areas of the Bible we don't understand. Um, so we have to be willing to admit that and seek help from others. There's people a lot wiser than me that I can go to and ask about scripture and things like that. There's a number of books that are available. Um, We 
you know, we have our concordances. Um, we also have um, commentaries on scripture, which really help. Uh, so if you've got access to those, that's good. A number of those are available for free online now. So you can actually get into those. Uh, I do encourage people uh, to use eSword on their computers. eSword is a free app uh, on a computer. Don't use it on your phone. It's not as good. But there's a number of commentaries that you can actually download for free on eSword on a PC. And uh, it's outstanding. It's very, very good. And so I think uh, if you want to understand scripture more, feel free to ask questions. I think that's one of the big things. If there's people around you who know more about Scripture than yourself, ask questions and, and listen to what they say, but always go back to Scripture to make sure that what they tell you is in line with what's there. And uh, another thing you can do too, when you read a passage of Scripture, um, ask where that particular topic, the thing that challenged you or stood out, where else in Scripture is that mentioned? Go to it and, and just read all the passages of Scripture that speak about that particular topic, and that helps you understand as well. Uh, don't be threatened by the fact that we don't understand some parts of the Bible. Even Peter writes to Peter 3.16. He's talking about the Apostle Paul and he says, Paul writes the same, in, same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of matters um, that contain some things that are hard to understand. Yeah, well, Peter, the Apostle, said Paul writes stuff and I think, I don't know what he's saying. If the apostles struggled with it, then 1 Corinthians 2 says that we will not in our own natural selves understand the scriptures. The spirit of God discerns the word of God. So you need the spirit of God in you and then he's given you a brain and he expects you to use it. So asking questions, observe, interpret, apply. It's those skills and 100% agree. Ask questions, ask questions, ask questions, ask questions, ask questions. Get answers, get answers, get answers. (laughs) Be careful who you ask. Well, that's, that's the questions that we had submitted. Does anyone have any other questions that um, you want us to answer this evening? We have one over here from... So it's not really a how to read the Bible question. It's more theology. Are you guys still okay answering that? Cool. Sure. So over the course of this week, I came across a series of events that caused me to question two things. Um, what is the Bible reading or sermon text for next week? And number two, um, which is more important, what was it that actually saved us? Like, what was it that actually gave us salvation? Was it the love of God, A, or B, the actual act of sacrifice? And before you answer the question, this is what I currently understand. So let that sort of sway you a bit and then give me a response. God's love for us, I think you mentioned it this morning as well, was the same before and after Jesus died. So God loves sinners all the same. Then it appeared to me that God's love was not enough to save us because of his righteousness. So he required a sacrifice. Um, is it then true to say that God's love was powerless to save us and it was the actual act of Jesus dying on the cross that saved us um, and gave us eternal life? Um, (laughs) uh, There's a doctrine called the simplicity of God, um, which is this idea that you can't really divide the parts of God one from the other. Um, And and so it's... I'm I'm trying not to go into like a really deep, weird spiral thing here. Okay, I'll I'll try and and put it together in a a cogent way. it's, it's, prob- it's probably not right to look at the problem of sin and the need for salvation as a sequence of things that God responds to. Um, as if God's kind of going, oh, you know, what am I going to do about this? And I have insufficient power in this realm, in this part of myself to deal with it. Um, like the lamb was slain from the earth's foundation. You know, God knew this whole role um, coming out from the, from the start to the end. Um, and I don't, I'm not sure that you could separate the idea of the sacrifice of Jesus from the love of God. Like, I think the idea is that is the, like, the incarnated act of the love of God. Um, and so I would say that the love of God is sufficient be, only because it includes the sacrifice of Jesus um, might be the right way to think of it there. Um, that's where I'd start. I've got other thoughts if you want to talk about it after, but what do you reckon? That's what I was going to similar to what I was going to say. You can't, you can't separate God's love from Jesus' death. And not to be pedantic, but just to correct you slightly, I didn't say this morning that God loves us um, unconditionally, if you like, after Jesus, which is different to how he loved us before Jesus. I didn't say that. What I said was, 
Uh, God loves us because he loves us. That's the same before and after Jesus, but it's in Jesus that we see and experience that love, that unconditional, it's without equivalence in the world. It's God is the one who chooses to love. And because he loves, he therefore acts. And his act of love is to come in the person of Jesus and to pay all of our debt, sin debt, take the punishment for our sin, in order that we can be adopted into his family forever. So they're not separated. It's the one thing that all goes together. How do you know God loves you? Jesus died for me. Why did Jesus die for me? Because he loved me. Okay? So how are we saved? We're saved because God loves us, because of his mercy, because Jesus died and paid the penalty for our sin, because he died, because he rose, because we have repented and believed, which is God working in us. It's all of those things together. It's not we're saved because of that one thing. Okay? Do we have another question? And I'll go running and give you the microphone. Um, I've got a question for like when you're reading a book like Leviticus, how do you, um, cause it's like a bunch of rules, right? And it's like, it's stuff that you can't really relate as much as other stuff. So like, how do I, how do I deal with that without like getting bored kind of thing? Now, not to say that the Bible's boring. <laughs> well, it is boring sometimes. I mean, let's not lie to ourselves. Um, that's because it's difficult to read and sometimes we're not equipped to, like, at a particular moment to understand. And so if you read something you don't understand, then that's, you know, going to bore you, but you've got to figure it out and then it becomes kind of alive. Like, I've been digging into Leviticus a lot recently, specifically Leviticus, which is kind of funny. Um, and Leviticus particularly, like, is the, basically the rules for the, it's, it's the rules about the priestly order. You know, it's, it's about how Israel's priests do the stuff that's supposed to bring their nation close to God. It's how the priests of the nation of priests maintain the nation of priests. And so when you read in Leviticus this this thing about, you know, don't wear like two different kind of threads bound into the same clothing, that's a rule that doesn't actually apply to Gentiles for a start. So we don't have to go, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to throw out all my like 50-50 poly cotton shirts. Um, <laughs> like we're not supposed to apply it that way. But there is lots of stuff, in, particularly in Leviticus, um, lots and lots of sacrificial law. And you go, why is this important? Um, if you want to go really deep into theology and symbolism, there's a whole lot of rich stuff in Leviticus. If you want to just kind of glide through at a mid-level there, you can go, all right, this is establishing very, very clearly how desperately we need something, and particularly sacrifices, something to get between us and our sin uh, so that we can become acceptable to God. And that the system that's set up in Leviticus is this sacrificial system, which over the course of the Bible, you learn is actually more of a picture than a thing. It's like not actually functional. The blood of goats and, and bulls does not actually redeem us from sin. That's a picture of an actual genuine sacrifice that is the love of God in person, Jesus Christ, who is going to be the real sacrifice. Um, so because we don't obey the Levitical laws, because we are not Levites, um, its main value to us as Christians now is the symbolism and the power of that. That's what I'd say. I have an elderly gentleman in the 10.30 service who's been coming to Sunnybank for a long time and often uh, there's a series of weeks every now and again he'll, he'll come up to me and say, I've got a question. And he's a bit, it's out of the Bible. He's reading through the Bible. And I said, is this another one of those Bible? He said, yes. I said, well, just stop reading the Bible. <laughs> His wife looks at me in sheer horror. And he's got good questions. Usually they're cultural questions. Leviticus, I first read Leviticus... When I became a Christian, I started reading the Bible at Genesis, and I thought that was wonderful. I got to Exodus, and I thought that was terrific until you get to the law, and then I sort of like crashed. So I thought, oh, this is terrible. Then I got to Leviticus. That just about did me in. So I jumped Leviticus and went to Numbers. Oh, glory. (laughs) And somebody wisely said, go read the New Testament. Leviticus is a very deep, rich gospel book. The gospel is all the way through Leviticus. You just need the clues or the keys to it. I'll give you just one. Um, when it talks about a sacrifice, there are different sacrifices. Say, take, observe the differences of the sacrifices. Some were total, some were um, you know, to be shared in terms of fellowship. That has meaning. 
But often, consistently in the sacrifices, they take the fat around the kidneys. What? Yeah, they take the fat around the kidneys. Why? Well, in the Jewish culture, my understanding is, I'll be corrected in a minute, <clears throat> my understanding is that was the best bit. So what you're giving to God is the best bit. So it, it's full of picture language that all points to Jesus. And we don't follow the Levitical code because of Jesus, because it's all saying it's about him, human sacrifice. Animal sacrifice is just a picture of that. But the picture contains truth and lessons for us. So it's God's word that we need to do the hard yards and get to know some of these symbols and stuff. But you won't do it by yourself. You need help. I needed help. I get my help through other preachers, but also through commentaries and whatever else. Asking questions. Um, any more questions? Uh, which one's first? All right, we'll go, we'll go here and then we'll go over here. Okay, just because this is closer. Um, is, do you know any resources that would help us understand the confusion that is the book of Revelations? Clear as mud. I think it's back the, the same things that uh, we spoke about before, you know, the concordances are possibly the best. Um, the NIV application uh, concordance is very, very good because it gives a context um, in, in today's terms. So uh, I, I'd possibly look at using those. And there, I mean, there's plenty of resources online as well. So I think Desiring God um, explains things very, very basically. And I think I mentioned those videos too by... Um, that it gives an overview of a book and things like that. They're all avail available on Right Now Media. So I'd encourage you to look at those too. Because once, once you get an overview of the book and you know where it's going and what it's talking about and things like that, it helps to make a lot of the things there uh, understandable. But Revelation is one of those books where uh, if you understand it totally, please come and see us. We would love to know some answers to some of the questions we've got. And again, I think we need to be wise enough to say, God never intended us for, to know absolutely everything, every time, every place that things are going to happen, and we have to be content with that. Like in the parable that Charlie spoke about tonight with the parable of the sower, it's a story, and it contains truth. But not every detail in the story has meaning or value. It's just there to give the story momentum or meat to us. Does that make sense? So not everything in the book of Revelation has to have specific meaning. It's part of the story. So the best thing you can do with Revelation, as we said when they use is sit down one afternoon and read it. Take a couple of hours. Just read the whole thing, beginning to end. See the big picture. See it as a story which is unfolding. And then you can start layering down and going through more details. Um, but there are resources, and uh, we can put you in touch with some of those. Uh, Margaret, I think. Hi, um, I just want to go back to the memorization of scripture. Um, repetition, to... repetition, repetition. Okay, that's. But my point is, um, like I know from teaching kids church and stuff, it's so we really make sure all our kids really um, memorize memory verses, and um, I find find it's great to do that. Um, and then I've read, you know, books of people who've been in chains for the gospel, like Brother Ewan, who's, who have emphasised the need that we need to be memorising scripture. And I just wonder from your the perspective of you three, how much, um, you, how much weight you put on that, um, whether it's deliberate or, um, you know, I know that you, Pastor Darrell, can just go, oh, it's Romans, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, a lot of us can't do that. I've never said Romans blah, blah. <laughs> exactly. I can't even remember what you well, say. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, and, and Pastor Darrell, he, he's very good at scripture memorisation. There's no doubt at all. I wish I was. Um, I, I do have a stack of um, scripture passages on my desk. I go through them every morning. Um, I, I try and memorise scripture. I think it's one of those things that I, I've always deeply desired and it's one of the things that God hasn't blessed me with. But um, when I've needed scripture, for some reason it comes to mind, so I'm very thankful when God actually does that. But if you can memorise scripture, do it. I, 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 would, I would love to memorise all of scripture. 
uh, and, and it'd just be so awesome to be able to have that on hand all the time without having to actually open the book. But yeah, I, I think it's invaluable. And I think when you come against struggles in life and things like that, if you can bring a scripture to mind, it's just so much better. And certainly in those most difficult times of my life, there's been passages of scripture that I have been able to memorise and they're still with me now. So yeah, I think if you can do it, definitely do it. And, and we want to help people. If people want to memorise scripture, let's get together. Let's look at ways that are going to help people. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah I um, am... I am the Google generation. I am bad at memorizing things. If I need to know something, I look it up. Um, and that's not a very good habit to have, if you, as far as Scripture goes, because having Scripture locked up in your head is amazing. Um, I, I once had a friend who I was doing like kind of a Bible study accountability thing with, and we decided we are going to try and memorize the entire book of James. Um, just, a, just a little one. Um, we got to like most of chapter one. I still have most of chapter one floating around, and, I, and like it's so useful <laughs> just having that. Um, and so... If you discover techniques that are even better for grown people who have already become dependent on search engines um, to memorize scripture, I would certainly appreciate that. Um, but I'm not sure there's any shortcut besides just doing the hard yards and, and repeating stuff over and over. It's certainly super valuable to have scripture on hand like that rather than a vague sense of what a scripture says and then a Google search later and then, oh, that's what I meant. I think sometimes people have got their five favourite verses that they've memorised and then they're really missing out on the richness of everything else. Just a heads up. Yeah, we'll come to Jeff down the back. There's a heads up. Uh, the pastor's been talking about a discipleship pathway, a discipleship course, and part of that course is actually Bible memorisation. So we would certainly love that to be a value of our church. And it must be said, it's easier to memorise the more literal trans... I don't use them like using that word. The more, what's the word? That'll do. The more literal translations of the scripture. So like ESV, NIV is okay if you stick with it. But once you start getting into some other translations, then it becomes the more modern the language, it's more difficult to memorize because there's nothing distinct about it. Just why the King James is so easy to memorize because the language is very different. It has a resonance to it and it, and it can stick in your brain. RSV, ESV are easier to memorise, New American Standard, they're the easiest ones to memorise. But it is a skill and it's certainly commendable. And the most impressive thing, the reason I like to memorise scripture is because whenever I'm listening to God's word being quoted, the stuff that impacts me the most is watching the preacher just quote scripture. That just always blows me away. That's God's word. And the guy who did it the most was a guy called Ravi Zachariah, if you've heard of him. I was at a conference with him one day and he just stood there and he closed his eyes and he rattled off about five verses out of 1 Timothy 2 or something like that. Just powerful. Just let the word of God speak. Just release it. Yeah. So memorising is very important. In fact, the Bible talks a lot about memorising, hiding it in your heart, um, holding each other accountable. And a, another good way to do it is uh, having a buddy, checking with each other. So husband's wife or accountability groups or whatever. Jeffrey. I've got a silly question to ask, please. Not Jeff. Yeah. Once saved is always saved. Is it biblically and theologically a right or valid statement? Or in other way, once we are saved in Christ, do we need to do something else to be kept saved? Yo. Do you understand the question? We actually have that phrase in our constitution, once saved, always saved. It's not a very helpful theological phrase. The truth of it is correct. And once we are saved in Christ, we are saved eternally. That do? <laughs> if you are saved, then you will endure, you will persevere, you will be transformed and you will change, you will bear fruit. So if you looked at, again, the parable that Charlie spoke about, there were people who received the word, the second and third soils. They received it. They acted like they were saved, but in fact, there's no fruit, so there's no salvation. So there are people who think they're saved. There are people who say they're saved. There are people who might even, whatever, um, claim that they're saved, but in fact, they're not saved. But if you are saved, you will be changed. And if you're not changed then only God knows if you are saved or not. But if Jesus died for you, if you confess him as Lord in your heart and believe that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. 
If you believe and confess that, you'll be changed. Okay, so I don't like the expression, once saved, always saved, because it leads to a very lazy, sloppy Christian life. I'm saved, I can do whatever I like. Um, Calvin used to say that we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It always comes with transformation and it comes with works and changing of desires by the work of the Holy Spirit within you. So saved by grace, kept by grace, he loves us far more than certainly we deserve and regardless of what we do. Okay. We might, we might make this the last one because time is getting away from us and then if you've got questions after this... Come and see us after the service. Thanks, oh, Jerome. No pressure or anything. This might not be a very good question to answer. <laughs> um, all, all, all questions are good questions. No such thing as a dumb question or a bad question. All yeah, questions you haven't are heard my good question questions. <laughs> now I've built that up. We read the Bible a lot, um, or we should be. Who should, who should teach the Bible? When should we be ready to share the Bible? And how can we know if we're doing the right thing? Uh, the Bible says that there are certainly some whom God has gifted and called to be teachers of the word. James 3 says that we ought not to rush into being that because teachers are going to be judged with stricter judgment. So there is a level of where God equips people to have be qualified to teach God's word. But having said that, Colossians 3, 16 also says that we are to teach and admonish one another. So... Each of us are to teach one another. Um, Book of Acts talks about this group of people called the Bereans. They used to hear the apostles preach and they used to open the scriptures daily to see if what they're hearing is so. Is this biblical? That's, that's a life skill. It's, so who teaches the Bible? We teach the Bible. We're Bible-believing, Bible-reading, Bible-teaching people. But to do so in a public context, there probably needs to be some recognition and some ability and some development. So not just anybody can get up and teach the scriptures. Um, But on the other hand, that does not absolve us from a responsibility to teach and to share one-on-one in groups in whatever situation we're in. Is that okay? It's a good question. There are some churches, of course, who go to the point of you cannot teach the scriptures unless you have been licensed. So you've been theologically trained or prepared in some way that you can read the Bible accurately and you can teach it, therefore, accurately. And in one sense, that's commendable. On the other other side of that coin is it's too limiting. Um, We could go on and on, I guess, but come and have a chat. Uh, I think just um, with that particular topic too, I remember one particular study that uh, I was in years and years ago and we used to pride ourselves in pouring over scripture and we just get so hung up on a word and stuff like that. We had a new Christian came into that group and we were pouring over one particular part. I think it was in Ephesians somewhere and uh, we were debating over what this actually said and this new Christian who didn't know much about their Bible piped up and said, doesn't it say this? And we went... Um, yeah, okay, we'll move on now. <laughs> so don't think yeah, you can't right. contribute. Okay, it doesn't matter where you are in your walk in life uh, with Christ, you can contribute from day one. That's a and great illustration, Charles. I've had that experience lots of times. It never ceases to surprise me. God will use the least informed person to give an insight into Scripture, which just humbles you and says, yep, yes. it's the Spirit of God who's doing it, it's not us. Amen. Amen. So we're just going to close the service now. I I know we'd love to do another song, but we are after eight. So uh, we're just going to close the service. I'm just going to close in prayer. And uh, then we can just have more conversation or enjoy supper together. Let's just pray. Father God, thank you so much for this series. Thank you for your presence with us. Thank you that you've given us your word. Lord, we want to learn more from you. And I pray that at the very least, those who are gathered here this evening will have a desire, a hunger and a passion for more of you, that they will delve deeply into your word, Lord, that they will challenge each other, that Lord, we will be people who speak about your word, the things that you've revealed to us and the challenges that that has issued. Father, we want to honour you not just here on Sundays, but with every moment of our lives. So Lord, dwell with us, I pray, and allow us to humble ourselves and dwell with you. We pray this now, Father, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Thank you one and all. Bless you.